Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history. This week on the agenda, we're having a chat about Johann Sebastian Bach, one of the most famous composers in the world of Western classical music. We've done episodes like this before, um, and I really enjoyed making them. Episodes 177, 178, Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart, and uh, episode 194, Ludwig van Beethoven, go across them. And in those episodes, uh, we didn't just talk about these composers and and their lives, but we also had to listen to samples of their work, and we talked about their lasting musical legacy more broadly. And uh, these musical, these composer-based episodes, they're they're really good fun to research and put together. I enjoy talking about classical music and its history. Um, For one, as boring and as stuffy as classical music is generally considered to be by many, many people, it has had a huge influence on modern music even today, although obviously nowhere near as much of an influence as folk and gospel and blues. Um, <clears throat> but you're probably a lot more familiar with classical music than you realise, um, as you'll see as we get across many of Bach's more famous works. And this is one of the things I love about writing these episodes and putting them together, is I really enjoy helping people realise that classical music is so much more than just background music for a fancy scene in a film. Um, the second reason, the other reason that I really enjoy um, making episodes like this, uh, in every intro, I remind you how useless my history degree was for me. Uh, but I also received the beginnings of a classical music education in high school. And this was even more useless for me. I never went anywhere with uh, with the, the classical training or the, the beginnings of the classical training I received. I say beginnings, 10 years, 10 years of, of and I still feel like an absolute amateur. Um, so there is just so much stuff stuck up there in the in the dusty vaults of my memory from from the period I spent as a disgruntled second desk cellist, enviously coveting that prime first desk position. But I was never very good. As I say, I was never very good. Um, But a lot of the theory and the history and all the other stuff that I learned about, it stayed with me. I really enjoy listening to classical music. I enjoy thinking about it. I enjoy sharing my enjoyment of classical music with other people. So today we're here once again to talk about one of the greatest classical composers of all time. This time, as I say, Johann Sebastian Bach, whose musical legacy can still very much be felt today. Bach's work is one of the preeminent examples of late Baroque music, a period within classical music that lasted from uh, 1680 to 1750, the late Baroque, while while Baroque music more generally dates back to 1600 or so. Um, And and Bach's work is monumentally important to the history of uh, of Western classical music and has helped to shape the journey of Western music more, more generally but when, it, when we talk about the composer himself and the life that he led, he, his story in his own time um, and the immediate legacy he had after his death, um, th- these are all really interesting to, to get across and, and, and also not what you might expect from a, a composer of his calibre, as we'll, as we'll get into. Anyway, as ever, a lot to get across today, the entire life of a composer to talk about, some of his music to listen to, and, uh, you know, a... Uh, a deep-seated need for me to feel like it meant something to have spent a decade or more of my life learning about and practicing the 
the modulation of diatonic scales or, or, the, or the transposition of harmonic progressions, which any musically inclined people listening will know is actually not very impressive at all. But hey, it sounds complicated, does it? I can still do it after all these years. Sounds very impressive, doesn't it? Anyway, <clears throat> let's get to it here before I get completely lost up my own ass. Let's get out of the way with the story of Johann Sebastian Bach, one of the most compo- one of the most famous composers in the history of Western classical music. Here we go, going all the way back here. We're going all the way back to March 1685, when on either the 21st or the 31st, depending on whether you use the old style or the new style dates, episode 236, get across it, history of the calendar for more details on that. Johann Sebastian Bach was born in the town of Eisenach in modern-day Germany, uh, back then the Duchy of Saxe eisenach uh, part of the Holy Roman Empire at the time. Now, he was the youngest of eight kids to parents Johann Ambrosius Bach. Um, get ready, by the way, because there are going to be a lot of Johann Bachs today, uh, and his wife, Maria Elizabeth Lemmerhurt. And uh, Bach's entire family, even his extended family, all very musical. His dad was a musical director. His uncles and cousins were composers and performers and skilled instrumentalists. Uh, for instance, his uncle, Johann Christoph Bach, uh, he got uh, young young Johann Sebastian Bach uh, started with playing the organ. And his cousin, <coughs> Johann Ludwig Bach, uh, he exposed him to composition and the violin. So young Johann Sebastian Bach had no chance at all. He was going to be a musician come hell or high water. It's just what people called Johann Bach did. Bach in the day. Um, but sadly, Bach was, uh, he was orphaned at a young age. His mum died in 1694 and his dad that very next year. So by the age of 10 in 1695, he's without any parents. But thankfully, especially as he was the youngest child, he had an older brother who was able to, ta- able to take care of him. He moved in with this older brother who was also named Johann, and not only just also named Johann, named Johann Christoph, Johann Christoph Bach, a different Johann Christoph Bach to the organ-playing uncle that I mentioned. We've got two people in the same family, an uncle and a nephew, with the same first name and the same middle name. What's going on there? How do they run out of middle names as well as first names? Anyway, um, Johann Sebastian grows up with Johann Christoph, um, who was also, of course, a musician. Uh, and he tutored and instructed young Johann Sebastian, uh, who, as a result, received a very high-quality musical education. Johann Christoph himself had been taught by <laughs> he'd been taught by another composer, uh, not a Bach, but still a Johann, Johann Packelbell um, of the famous Canon in D. Uh, and so uh, Johann Christoph made sure that his younger brother got the best t- teaching that he could provide. Um, and he also received as well, you know, a regular formal education too. He learned Latin and Greek um, while also studying and performing music at school. So. Bach received a, uh, an excellent education both traditionally at school and musically at home. However, nothing at this stage indicated that he was going to go on to become one of the most famous composers of all time. And compare this at this stage, compare, compare the, you know, the, the, the early years of, of Bach to someone like, for instance, Mozart, who by the age of six was being taken around on continental tours to showcase his immense talent at the keyboard for European royalty. So Bach had a very, very different start in life to some of the other legends of classical music. And uh, this is something that uh, we'll keep an eye on as we continue Bach's story, um, the the sort of the esteem in which he was held and his reputation as a musician as a, and as a composer, because again, it doesn't necessarily take the path that you might expect. Anyway, <clears throat> 
1703, at the age of 18, Bach finished his schooling and he gained a position as a court musician for Duke <laughs> Johann Ernst III in, uh, in the city of Weimar, east of Eisenach. Now, I say he was a court musician, and that's because he was not the court musician, which is a position that you generally expect famous composers to, uh, to, to occupy. But he's still a young kid. He's 18 years old. And uh, as I say, he didn't have this meteoric rise to greatness like some other composers. His first job as a court musician, barely even a musician, honestly, he was doing essentially just grunt work, the equivalent of doing the, 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 the photocopying and the coffee runs these days. However, thankfully, his, uh, his evident skill with the organ resulted in, a, I guess you call it a promotion, I suppose. Um, a little over six months into his time in Weimar, he was picked up uh, as, as the, not a, but the church organist in the nearby town of Arnstadt. So, again... Not the quickest rise to fame here. He's the church organist in a small German town. Um, but when it comes to Bach and and his rise to fame, at, at this stage of the story, we're still 15 years away from him writing music that you've even heard of. And again, to compare this bloke to someone like Mozart, Mozart by that age was almost dead. He was a few short years away from death in his early 30s. Uh, so again, two very, very different musical careers here. Bach has the, the the pinnacle of his career decades away, while Mozart is speeding towards an early grave with most of his most famous works already well and truly behind him. Anyway, Bach worked away as an organist in Arnstadt, but honestly didn't seem to like the gig too much. He didn't have very much respect for the other musicians that he worked with, uh, worked with, and he didn't seem to bother hiding this either. Uh, he, he's, he was rather open with his disdain of, uh, of his colleagues in Arnstadt. So much so that after, <laughs> after calling one of his colleagues some rather nasty names, the bloke was, was that pissed off that he ended up attacking Bach with a stick. So... Ultimately, Bach didn't hang around in Arnstadt for very long, perhaps as a result of this, in addition to all the problems that he was having and causing. Anyway, in 1706, Bach got a new position in another nearby town called Mühlhausen, uh, still as a church organist. And uh, this position, it came with better pay and, importantly for Bach, better musicians. Bach was, even at this uh, relatively young age, he was developing a reputation as, uh, as a very skilled organist. Um, but he was also working very hard on his compositional skills, something that he wasn't very well known for at the time. Um, but uh, he was he was working very hard to improve. He really was. He, uh, he sought out the tutelage of other skilled composers of the time, most notably uh, a composer and master organist named, can you guess, Johann Reinken. Yes. Uh, anyway. Bach did a lot better for himself in Mulhausen, uh, musically speaking, financially speaking, but also on a more personal level. Uh, despite not being a member of the aristocracy himself, Bach adopted one of the proud traditions of, of, of European nobility when he married his own cousin. Now, sadly, she wasn't called Johanna. Uh, her name was Maria Barbara Bach. Uh, but together, they uh, they had seven children. And uh, I know what you're thinking at this stage. Only seven? That's, well, not very many. Come on, let's let's put some effort in here, you two. Only seven? Jeez. Uh, but don't you worry. He'll catch up a little bit later on. We'll come to that. Anyway. Uh, oh, oh, sorry. I should mention as well. Um, two of these seven children were named Johan. And one of them was called Johan Christoph. So we've got... 
two generations, sorry, now three generations of uncles and nephews called Johann Christ- Christoph Bach, just to really make things confusing. But in the end, <clears throat> Bach remained in Mulhausen for two years, uh, then finally packed up and headed back to Weimar in 1708 to work as an organist there, back in the employ of the Duke. Obviously, he's come up in the world a little bit. He's not just doing all the grunt work. People have recognised his his uh, immense skill at the keyboard, and so now he uh, is given an official position in Weimar, a larger city, uh, as an organist. <clears throat> And during this time, Bach wasn't just putting on performances for the court. Uh, obviously, that was a very big part of his uh, of his role as as the uh, as the official organist, the court organist. He was doing a lot of work uh, putting on performances and, and and concerts and whatever else. But he was also writing music much more prolifically and much more confidently. He studied this craft with uh, with enormous dedication. He took a lot of influence, uh, in particular from the Italian school of composition, from from famous composers like Corelli and and Vivaldi. He of the Four Seasons, and you know, look, not much of the music he wrote around this time is particularly groundbreaking or famous. None of it defined his career, but he was on his way. And admittedly, some of the pieces that he wrote during this period in Weimar would end up being collated uh, into some of his very famous wider collections, but we will uh, we'll, we'll come back to that. We'll, we'll get to that in due course. Anyway, long story short, Bach did uh, pretty well for himself in Weimar. His skill as a uh, as a performer was was recognised um, when he was employed by the Duke, not just as a court musician, but as the court musician, as the concertmeister. Uh, from 1714 onwards, Bach worked as the director of music at the Ducal Court. He would organise grand musical performances with the uh, with the Ducal ensembles, often actually performing his work as he continued to develop as a composer. Now, a lot of this was church music, uh, music that was incorporated into, uh, into Protestant religious services and, and worship. But again, not much of the music that he wrote around this time is all that famous, not, not all that well-known, even these days when we've, we've gone over his catalogue with a, with a fine, uh, fine-tooth comb. Anyway, overall, this situation at Weimar, while Bach did okay for himself, it, it didn't last all that long. Within a couple of years, Bach fell out with the Duke. He moved on to bigger and better things in 1717. Honestly, at this stage, it's like this bloke is buddy working in Silicon Valley. It's like he's constant. He's constantly job hopping like a, a techie 21st century millennial. Although it's not all that often these days that your that your old employer locks you up in prison for a month before you move on, which is what happened to Bach. Um, apparently, he and the Duke had a disagreement that was bad enough to land Bach in the slammer for a couple of weeks before receiving what was diplomatically termed an unfavourable discharge. And so he moved on from the ducal court in Weimar. But he landed on his feet. I'll tell you that much. By now, his growing reputation as a a very talented organist, and also at this stage now, as a composer too, it was enough to secure him an immediate role at the court of Prince Leopold of Anhalt-Kirten. It's 1717, Bach is 32, he's moving up in the world, he's moved from a ducal court now to a princely court. While living in Kirten, which is uh, which is just north of, uh, of Leipzig, um, Bach was once again the Kapellmeister, the director of music. But at this court, right, this position was a little different to the, uh, the one that he'd had in Weimar, because in Kirten, under Prince Leopold, um, being the director of music was a much more prestigious position. Leopold bloody loved his music. He didn't just have a Kapellmeister for the sake of it. Leopold very deliberately sought out Bach due to his obvious talents and gave him a lot of freedom 
and a lot of money to do his best work there. And as a result, due to the, the expansive scope he was given by the prince to ply his trade, we can see an enormous improvement in Bach's standing as a composer. And we can now, excitingly, start to showcase some of his most famous works because it is here in Curtin that his compositional career really took off. Bach wrote all sorts of stuff. Um, and, and this time around in Curtin, not very much of it was church-related. Most of his compositions in, in Weimar had been liturgical under the Duke. But now, under the Prince, he wrote all sorts of different pieces of music. Concertos, sonatas, partitas, suites. Bach's career as a composer flourished in the six years that he spent in Curtin. And he truly began the journey from being a, a, a virtuosic and skilled organist uh, to also becoming one of the greatest musical composers that the world has ever seen. Under the employee of, of Prince Leopold, Bach composed some of his most famous, most enduring, and most magnificent works, which we can now start to have a listen to. Um, firstly, Bach wrote a series of suites for solo cello that have gone on to become a central part of the instrument's identity. Bach's cello suites are foundational. They're a foundational set of works in the repertoire of the classical cellist. Um, and there is one movement from one suite that is, I think it's fair to say, probably the most well-known cello piece in existence. More famous than Edgar's cello concerto, than, than Brahms's cello sonata, more famous than even the legendary Saint-Saëns work, The Swan. It is, of course, the first movement of the first suite. Here is Bach's suite for solo cello number one in G major, movement one, prelude. Even if you're not a fan of classical music, I would wager that you've heard this piece before. It's been in Master and Commander, in House, in Smallville, and The Pianist, in Elysium, and of course, most famously perhaps, in The Hangover Part 2, although it is unforgivably abridged in the scene in which it appears. Um, although I will say, the actor, right, Mason Lee, the, the, the bloke actually playing it in that scene, uh, he can actually play the cello. And so the scene isn't ruined by an actor inexpertly miming playing an instrument that they've got no idea about, which is, you know, so often the case in, uh, in popular media. Anyway, um, this piece is an exceptional work that showcases an instrument that is often overlooked when it comes to solo performance, although I do say that with a level of bias, given my uh, my 10 years behind uh, behind the cello. But look, it is. It's a beautiful instrument. It really is. Um, all too often loses the limelight, most unfairly in favour of the haughty and imperious violin. Oh, the violin. Oh, everyone, everyone be quiet. Shh, shh, a violin's playing. Everyone just has to sit there and listen while the violin plays. But then again, I guess cellists shouldn't complain too much. Broadly speaking, you're playing an instrument that commands the respect of other musicians. A, uh, a quick glance to the right while sitting in an orchestra pit will remind any cellist of just how much worse it could be. You could have ended up playing the viola. Anyway, a, uh, another very famous work or, or collection of works, really, uh, also emerged from this period in Bach's career, and it is known as the Well-Tempered Clavier. The Well-Tempered Clavier is a series of 48 piano pieces arranged in pairs 
uh, each one a prelude and a fugue, uh, and uh, one pair for each musical key. Now, for the non-musically inclined, I'm not going to go too deep on keys here, uh, but every piece of music in the Western tradition has what's known as a key, right? C major, F sharp minor, that sort of thing. A musical key, um, it, it essentially tells you what notes you're allowed, I guess, to play in a specific piece of music. Um, and there are 24 different keys, sort of. It Hmm. It depends how you count them because there are technically 30 key signatures, although notationally they're not distinguishable based on the signature itself. Um, and then also we've, uh, we've got to think about enharmonic equivalence as well. I'm oh, sorry. Stop. No, I said we weren't going to go too deep here. Long story short, Bach wrote 24 pairs of piano pieces, one for each key, the first work of its kind. Despite releasing this work formally in 1722, uh, some of the pieces within the Well-Tempered Clavier had been kicking around for a fair few years. Uh, remember how I said some of the stuff that he wrote back in Weimar would be collated into later works? This is that later work. Now, interestingly, Bach had an explicit stated objective with the publishing of the Well-Tempered Clavier. It was, in his words... <clears throat> For the profit and use of musical youth desirous of learning, and especially for the pastime of those already skilled in this study. So the Well-Tempered Clavier is, if you want to be rather uncharitable in describing it, essentially a collection of technical exercises. It's almost like a textbook. Uh, a series of pieces designed to practice and study on the, the clavichord or the harpsichord or whatever type of keyboard you were playing back then. Today, usually it's a piano. And by having a piece in each key, a budding keyboardist could practice playing in each key. Uh, remember how I said uh, a key tells you which notes you're allowed to play? A simple way to think about that is with a piano. Um, if you're playing in the key of C major, for instance, you're only allowed to play uh, the white keys, none of the black keys. But if you play in, let's say, D major, now you have to start using two of the black keys, the ones on the left of the groups of two and three, uh, and you use them instead of the white keys to their immediate left. And, oh boy, in, ex in trying to explain this, I am now really gaining a, a new respect and sympathy for music teachers everywhere because I am learning just how hard it is to try to teach people about, about key signatures and then there's accidentals and modulation and, oh my goodness, I don't know how any music teacher ever gets any of this across. Anyway, the reason I'm going through all this, right, is to illustrate the fact that the Well-Tempered Clavier was, at its core, really, designed to be instructional. And as, um, as any music student can tell you, instructional music isn't usually very interesting to play, and certainly it's not very interesting to listen to. Scales and arpeggios and, and technical exercises, these are the very worst part about learning to play an instrument properly. And given the fact that Bach's Well-Tempered Clavier is something along the lines of a series of technical exercises, you might think that the pieces within this collection would fall into the same boring and insufferable category as every other technical exercise that ever, that's ever been written. You might think that until, that is, you have a listen to them.
This is the very first piece from the Well-Tempered Clavier, Prelude and Fugue Number 1 in C Major, and this is the calibre of the practice material that Bach is putting out to help people learn how to play music. Exquisite, deft, beautiful pieces like this. He published a second volume too, 20 years later in 1742, and together these works have gone on to have an enormous musical legacy. The Well-Tempered Clavier is a very important work, very important indeed. Later generations of musicians studied these pieces, they learnt by playing these pieces, and you can very clearly hear Bach's influence on centuries of musicianship and composing. Both Mozart and Beethoven studied the Well-Tempered Clavier. Beethoven could, could play the whole thing by the age of 11. And both rewrote some of these pieces for string ensembles, um, while even into the 19th and, and the 20th centuries, Chopin and, and Shostakovich, they wrote their own series of preludes and fugues based on Bach's work. This is foundational stuff. This is why Western music is the way it is today. If you trace back through the genealogy of the music we listen to, even in the 21st century, Bach and his well-tempered clavier are there somewhere if you go back far enough. However, the cello suites, the well-tempered clavier, and in my opinion, every single other piece of music that Bach ever wrote is all overshadowed by what is, as far as I'm concerned, the finest work that Bach ever created. And further, one of the finest pieces of music ever created by anyone in the history of humanity. And I have, I have a reasonably convincing piece of evidence that, uh, that I'm not alone in that assessment. In 1721, Bach presented a series of six concertos to a bloke named Christian Ludwig, Margrave of Brandenburg-Schwedt, um, a, a nobleman who had taken a keen interest in Bach's work. And these concertos are, as I've already said, amongst the greatest pieces of music ever written, with one of them in particular being one of the most spectacular works of art on the face of the earth. And so what do you think Margrave Christian Ludwig did when he received this masterpiece as a gift from Bach. This man had just been handed a musical Mona Lisa, a compositional card players, a symphonic standard bearer. And what did he do with the manuscript that was given to him? He chucked it in a box in storage and died without ever having heard the concertos performed. This idiot, right, this dickhead of a margrave, he, the story goes that his court musicians took one look at the manuscripts that, that Bach had given him and they said, nah, mate, these are too hard. No way we can play this. Anyway, here's Wonderwall. So the margrave, right, with court musicians that weren't up to scratch, that couldn't play this masterpiece that Bach had just given to him freely, the margrave stored the manuscripts that Bach had handed over and just forgot about them altogether. The original copies of one of the most sublime artistic works in human history just sat around gathering dust for over a century. After the Margrave died, um, the, the manuscripts eventually ended up in the hands of one of Bach's students, um, who then consequently left them to Frederick the Great's sister, episode one, get across it, uh, Princess Anna Amalia. She was a great lover, lover of the arts. She was a composer and a musician herself. But even she didn't realise what she'd inadvertently come into possession of. The, the manuscript, again, of one of the all-time great works in, in, in the classical canon. Um, the original manuscripts, they were put up in her attic, uh, where they remained lost to history until 1849, 
when they were finally rediscovered during a clean-out, and they remain now in the Berlin State Library after having been rescued from an, uh, from an Allied bombardment during the Second World War by a librarian who hid them under his coat and ran into a forest to take shelter. So I'm very glad that the manuscript survived. I'm very glad that today we have access to the original copies of the very pinnacle of Bach's work, in my opinion. They are, for some reason, not his most famous works. But again, for my money, they are his absolute best. They are definitional examples of the highest point of music from the late Baroque era. But one one interesting little thing about these concertos is, uh, despite the fact that they were given as a gift to this Margrave, the Margrave of Brandenburg, Brandenburg Schwedt, um, despite the fact that he never, probably never heard them, right? He never had them performed. He never truly appreciated or understood their brilliance. Today, they still bear the Margrave's name. These concertos became known to history as the Brandenburg concertos. They are the best works that Bach ever wrote. And here is the very best of the six of them. The first movement of concerto number two in F major. You should go and listen to each and every one of these six concertos. But if, look, if you really aren't the sort of person to get into classical music, at least listen to the first movements of concertos two and five. And I know, I know I've been going on about it. I know I've been going on and on about the Brandenburg concertos like, like an anime fan trying to lend you a DVD. But honestly, these pieces of music are amongst the richest and most glorious works of art you will ever come across. And as I mentioned before, I'm not the only one who thinks so. The piece I just played, a sample of there, that was chosen to represent humanity to the galaxy when it was blasted into space attached to NASA's Voyager probes in 1977. The probes took with them the the so-called Golden Records, which contained samples of human greetings in 55 different languages, uh, various sounds from Earth, thunder, frogs, a horse and cart, Um, but also 27 examples of music from all around the world. And the very first of those 27 examples is, of course, Movement 1 of Concerto Number 2, one of the all-time greatest pieces of music ever written. Anyway, with my... Personal adoration of the Brandenburg Concertos duly expressed, we can now wrap up the story of Bach's time in Curtin. Uh, because it wasn't all fame and fortune and glorious masterpieces. Sadly, his wife Maria Barbara died in 1720 at the age of just 36. Although Bach, uh, Bach did move on pretty quickly, it has to be said. He married a talented young opera singer named Anna Magdalena Wilke that very next year. He was 36 and she was just 20. So a bit of a May-December romance. They were really, I guess, more of a May-October romance. But um, I mentioned before that Bach only had seven kids with Maria Barbara. With Anna Magdalena, on the other hand, he had almost twice that. They had 13 children together. And this is not a joke. Three of them were named Johann bringing the total number of sons he named after himself to five, plus a daughter called Johanna. So that's six. Of the 20 
kids that Bach had. Must have been a very busy bloke. In total, six of them were named Johann or Johanna. Now, I do need to mention something that I'm sort of glossing over here. It's not very nice to think about, but it is part of the story, um, so I should probably mention it. Half of his 20 kids, um, half the, the kids that he had with both of his wives didn't make it to adulthood. Only 10 of them made it, uh, which is very sad indeed. Um, but many of those that did make it uh, to adulthood became famous composers and musicians in their own right. Wilhelm Friedemann Bach, Johann Christian Bach, Johann Christoph Friedrich Bach, um, and the most famous of the lot, of course, Carl Philip Emanuel Bach, or CPE Bach, as he's, as he's often known. Anyway, Bach remained in Curtin as the Kapellmeister until 1723, when a new and very enticing opportunity arose for him, when he was appointed to a position called the Thomas Cantor in the city of Leipzig. Now, this was a very important musical position, far more distinguished than any that he'd held so far, because he was now the director of church music for the entire city of Leipzig. And Leipzig was one of the most important Protestant cities in the German-speaking world. So this was a big deal. But I will say, he almost didn't get the job, because it was another famous Baroque composer, Georg Philipp Telemann, who was offered the gig before Bach, but... uh, Telemann turned it down. He used the offer that he'd got from Leipzig to leverage a better deal with his employers in Hamburg, and he stayed put back in Hamburg. But that meant that Bach got the green light, he moved to Leipzig, accepted this job as the, as the Thomas Cantor, and remained in the city there for the rest of his life. He had far-reaching duties that involved everything from performance to instruction to, of course, composition. And uh, the initial years he spent in Leipzig had a renewed focus on church and liturgical music. And this resulted in 1727 in the debut of one of his most celebrated religious works, the St. Matthew Passion. Now, believe it or not, this uh, this passion, right, the St. Matthew Passion, it involves a, a choir accompanied by an orchestra, as you can hear, singing bits of the Bible, specifically from the book of Matthew. Um, Bach wrote four passions like this, one, of, uh, one, of, uh, one for each of the Gospels. Um, and the lyrics, if you want to put it in modern terms, the lyrics are just people singing Bible verses. There are other bits in them as well, but I I do like the fact that this famous piece of music is just Bach writing a nice tune and then people opening up the Bible and singing what's written in there. I am obviously oversimplifying a fair bit here, and the St. Matthew Passion remains one of the most well-known and well-loved pieces of sacred music from the late Baroque era. But it does make me think of like a a modern pop star, right, getting up on stage and... uh, just singing words from a cookbook or something instead of instead of writing new lyrics from themselves. Anyway, in uh, in 1729, Bach's musical focus shifted somewhat away from liturgical music when he uh, when he gained another new position. In addition to his role as Thomas Cantor, he was appointed as the director of the Collegium Musicum, a uh, a musical society founded by by Telemann, old mate Telemann, the uh, the shrewd negotiator from from Hamburg, and um, this proved to be a good move for Bach. This, uh, this new position that he gained. He was already in charge of the religious music in Leipzig and becoming the director of the Collegium Musicum effectively made him one of the leading figures when it came to the city's secular music as well. 
The Collegium Musicum staged weekly concerts, and Bach used these concerts to, be- to debut many of his new compositions. And many of these compositions have gone on to become very, very famous indeed. For instance, the Concerto for Two Violins in D minor. You might recognise this piece, especially if you're a fan of Marvel movies, because it appeared in the film Thor Ragnarok. And this is one of my favourite things, as I said, about doing episodes like this, because I do hope that there are listeners out there that realise, oh, hang on, wait, I do know this piece of music. And wait, I like classical music, after all. Go and listen to the whole concerto. It's fantastic. That was the second movement, but the first is also excellent and also pretty recognisable too. You might have heard it before. Anyway, this piece, right, the uh, the concerto for two violins in D minor, it, de- it debuted in, uh, in 1730, and uh, this was the beginning of a very good decade for Bach. Not only was he in charge of the Collegium Musicum, showing off all of his latest compositions and further improving his reputation as a, as a respected musician and composer. He was doing some very clever political move, moving and shaking as well. This guy really understood how to build a career. In 1733, he managed to gain yet another position to add to his collection when he was appointed as the court composer for the Elector of Saxony, the, the big boss of Leipzig, who also happened to be the King of Poland and the Grand Duke of Lithuania, Augustus III. Bach moved in some pretty exalted circles, and this was very good for his career. In 1737, he passed on the directorship of the, of the Collegium Musicum to one of his students, and instead focused on the composition and the, and, and the dissemination of more and more of his work. His reputation as a composer was increasing, although I think it's still fair to say at this time, Bach was mainly known for his skills at the keyboard, uh, while he was held in extremely high esteem throughout Europe's musical uh, musical community, it was principally for his skill as a performer, a, a fair bit more so than uh, for being known as a, as a composer. And he had the admiration of immensely important and powerful figures, not just the King of Poland, but also Frederick the Great was amongst his fans. But again, all of this is more due to his, uh, his reputation as an immensely skilled uh, performer and instrumentalist and musician rather than his reputation as a composer. Um, at the time, as a composer, he was most famous for the, the teaching materials he had written, things like the well-tempered clavier, uh, more so than the, uh, the pieces that he wrote. But in time, of course, that would change. And today, he is recognised as one of the greatest composers of all time, thanks in no small part to the music he wrote during this decade, during the 1730s. And there is so much of it that we could get into here. But I'll pick what is probably his most famous piece to emerge from this decade. Here is Bach's Orchestral Suite Number no. 3 in D Major. A very famous piece, one you've probably heard before, um, although you probably know it uh, by a different and altogether more amusing name. It doesn't generally tend to be called Orchestral Suite Number no. 3 in D Major. It tends to go by the name Air on the G-String. This is the actual name by which the piece is actually known, and no, it's not because Bach wrote about some lady waving her knickers about in the wind. It's because, uh, a century and a half later, a bloke named August Wilhelmer 
He arranged the piece so you could play the entire thing on the violin's lowest string, the string known as the G string, as distinct from its other strings, the D, A and E strings. It's an instantly recognisable piece of music. It's usually played in popular media media during serene and and stately affairs. Um, And I can think of no movie scene more serene or more stately in which the air on the G-string was played than in that one scene from the James Bond filmed The Spy Who Loved Me, um, the scene where that guy watches that girl get eaten by a shark. Sorry, spoilers for a film that came out almost 50 years ago. Anyway, as we move now into the 1740s, with Bach approaching 60 years of age, his musical focus shifted once again. He began to rework older music, and this took two forms. Firstly, he he revisited and revised much of his own work, taking previous compositions and uh, reworking and changing them into the definitive versions that we all enjoy today. This uh, is also the time you'll remember that he released the second book of The Well-Tempered Clavier with uh, another set of additional uh, pieces in it. But secondly, he took the work of other composers, older composers from the late Renaissance and early Baroque periods and adapted their work into a... uh, well, I don't want to say a more modern style because by now in the 1740s, this just wasn't really true. Um, I'm not having a go at the bloke, not not in any respect, right? But by this stage, Bach's music, it's starting to feel a bit old fashioned. The Baroque period, it's coming to an end. Generally speaking, Baroque music is said to have come to a close in 1750 for a reason that will become extremely apparent by the end of the episode. And honestly, for many people, the classical period has already begun. The the period that composers like Mozart and, and Haydn and a personal favourite favorite of mine, Boccherini, uh, are also famously associated with. Bach's final years were during the transition between the late Baroque and the early classical periods. And his style, one that in many ways defines Baroque music, was already beginning to sound dated. Nonetheless... Bach wasn't just written off because he was the equivalent of a music boomer. He still was held in very high esteem. He still had a lot of clout. And many of his works at the time were still well received, even if they even if they sounded old-fashioned. And, and I'll give you a modern parallel that will sort of demonstrate to you how this bloke held on to his musical credibility despite the work he was putting out sounding, you know, a, cu- a couple of decades behind the time. Blink-182 released a new album recently, and listening to it, it takes you right back to 20 years ago, when the biggest thing on your plate was, I don't know, whether you could find all the hidden tapes in Tony Hawk. Although, interestingly, I had to go back and double check this because I I couldn't believe this, right? But it's true. Blink-182 never actually appeared on a Tony Hawk's Pro Skater soundtrack. Isn't that wild? I could have sworn that they were in one of them, but no, they weren't at all. Anyway, Bach in his later years, like... Any legendarily great musician just refused to change his approach to the music that he wrote, right? Other musical legends like Blink-182, like Weezer, right? These are musicians that know what they're good at and 20 years, 30 years into their career, they're not changing a thing. And even though this resulted in Bach's later compositions in their time, sounding a little old-fashioned, a little date, a little, little out, of, out of touch with what was going on in music at the time. It means that today he has a very consistent and recognisable style that immediately 
makes his work identifiable as one of the as a product of one of the greatest musical minds in human history. And during this time, because of the reputation that he'd gathered over his career, Bach was able to travel around and perform extensively for the rich and the powerful. He, he wrote and published a, a great many smaller works and, um, as I say, continued to revise older work as well. And all this time, he remained in his position as the Thomas Cantor. Uh, he continued to receive the admiration of, of music lovers across Europe as a, as a grandee of, uh, of, of music at the time. Um, and there was one more thing that, that uh, took up a lot of his attention towards uh, the, the end of the 1740s in particular. It was during this time that he worked on a grand choral composition, um, in many cases taking his former work and adapting it in new ways to create this large and expansive work, right? His crowning achievement in the realm of choral music, still doesn't hold a candle to the Brandenburg Concertos as far as I'm concerned, but this work was published in 1749. It, it contains 27 movements, uh, takes almost two hours to perform from start to finish, uh, was never performed in its entirety during Bach's lifetime, but it was and still is a vast and ambitious work, one of the most famous of its kind, and we know it today as the Mass in B minor. Sadly, Bach would not live much longer after the publication of this piece. Um, by the end of the 1740s, his health really wasn't in a good way. His family and his colleagues began to prepare themselves for his death, which didn't seem to be too far away. And then, in 1750, with his eyesight failing due to cataracts, Bach underwent eye surgery with a British bloke named John Taylor, who was famed for his skill in treating poor vision. Although it's not clear why, because this guy has been proven to be an absolute charlatan. Taylor was a complete quack. He had no idea what he was doing. He worsened the eyesight of more or less everyone that he worked on. And tragically, when it comes to Bach, Taylor didn't just worsen Bach's eyesight. He bloody killed the bloke, but not before completely blinding him. Due to this botched surgery, in the weeks that followed, uh, Bach's already fragile health only grew worse, and ultimately, it meant that he died on the 28th of July, 1750, at the age of 65. And that, of course, is one of the reasons that 1750 is often considered to be the end of the Baroque period. The legacy that Bach left behind in the wake of his death was, I think it's fair to say, relatively minor, actually. Yeah, really not, not all that big uh, at the time. His compositions were old-fashioned. His children didn't do the best job of protecting his legacy. They misplaced and lost a whole lot of his unpublished work. And as time went on, new and rising stars came along to have their time in the limelight and the memory of Bach and his music just kind of began to fade, to be honest. In fact, it wasn't until the 19th century that the Western musical world underwent uh, what's today called the Bach Revival, thanks in no small part to the German composer Felix Mendelssohn, who took a great interest in Bach's work and breathed new life into his masterpieces by putting on 
public performances of them. A hundred years after the St. Matthew Passion was written, Mendelssohn performed it, performed it to a rapturous audience in Berlin, and Bach was Bach, baby. The Bach revival lasted throughout the 1830s and 1840s. It saw more and more of Bach's work uh, published far and wide, more than ever before. And it was only then that his skill as a composer, not just as a performer, but as a composer, was truly appreciated. From 1850 onwards, all this new interest in, in and appreciation for Bach resulted in him being lifted to new heights altogether, to where he stands today, really, broadly considered as one of the greatest Western composers to ever have lived. Bach's music is all around us today, as you've probably realised with the few small samples we've listened to as part of this episode. His legacy is as magnificent as it is enormous, and even today, he continues to influence young musicians and appreciators of music, even if they don't realise it. A great number of his famous works have appeared in popular media for decades and decades, and I would say that even those without the slightest interest in classical music are still far more familiar with Bach's work than even they realise. And to demonstrate this point, I have one final musical sample to play for you here. This piece is undoubtedly more famous than the St. Matthew Passion or the Mass in B minor, more famous than the air on a G-string or the well-tempered clavier. It is more famous even than the legendary Brandenburg concertos. In fact, I would be so surprised if there was one single listener who hadn't at some point heard this piece of music. Again, even if you didn't know it was written by Bach. It has completely outgrown him. And whatever his intent was in writing and performing this piece, it has taken on a meaning and association all of its own. One of the most instantly evocative pieces of music that you'll ever come across. We almost lost it too. It's said to have been copied by hand from an original Bach manuscript around 1740 by one of his students. A student named, of course, Johann, Johann Rink. Um, but even these details are sketchy. Um, one of the reasons that it's appearing here at the end of the show is that all of the music that we've heard today has been, broadly speaking, presented chronologically, right? Sort of showcasing the development of Bach's career. But I'm not able to do that with this piece because we don't even know for sure when Bach wrote it. In fact, some people argue that Bach may not have written at all, which I suppose is possible given that we know so little about its history. But it is broadly speaking credited to him. It is his most famous and most enduring piece for reasons you'll understand as soon as you hear it. This piece has become so closely linked with a certain genre that it's now actually passed into cliche. It's so overused in TV and film, you can't possibly use it now without meaning for it to be ironic or funny. Bach's most famous work at nine and a half minutes long, although you'll only need one single second to recognise it, it invokes dark and stormy scenes of a lightning-lashed mountainside castle. It is, of course, his Toccata and Fugue in D minor. But that's it. 
That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the story of Johann Sebastian Bach. And and, and my one hope for all of the uh, all the listeners who, who wouldn't really consider themselves to be fans of classical music, who've just listened to this episode, my hope is that you come away from it thinking, oh, I actually kind of do like classical music because maybe it's helped you realize that classical music is, is all around you and you're much more familiar with it than you realize. And it's not this stuffy old genre of music that only rich and posh wankers listen to. There is great beauty and great joy in classical music that's just waiting for you to to discover for yourself. So hopefully that's something that you do. I would love to do more episodes like this if there are composers that are particularly famous, have particularly famous works, or have had very interesting lives. I would love to hear your thoughts. Um, please get in touch. The contact form is on the website, halfhousehistory.net. Um, because sharing this sort of thing, sharing classical music, sharing the stories of, of some of these great artists from throughout history, is, it's fascinating. I really enjoy writing these, um, these, these episodes. I enjoy researching them. I enjoy picking which pieces of music to play for people. So I would love to, I'd love to do more episodes like this. Plenty of other composers we could get across. Um, Tchaikovsky, Brahms, Chopin, Debussy, Schubert, Haydn, Handel, Vivaldi, um, who else? Oh, bloody one of my personal favourites, Boccherini, mate, Luigi Boccherini, composer of the uh, the theme song for uh, for for quarter hour history. Get across it. So many we could do. So if there's one in particular you'd like to hear about, if there's um, you know a famous composer or famous music that you'd like me to have a chat about, halfhousehistory.net, contact form there, get in touch. Any other feedback, obviously, very welcome. It's been great to hear from listeners new and old alike throughout the week. Thank you so much to all the people writing. Um, apologies, I can't reply to everyone. Just get so many emails, it's not really possible for me to get back to everyone, but I do read every single one with a great sense of appreciation. So, so thank you very much. Um, there are a number of ways you can support the show if you so choose. Patreon.com slash half history, the best place to do that. You can also find merch on the merch store. But if you if you sign up on Patreon, um, you'll gain access to ad-free listening, early access to episodes, uh, behind-the-scenes stuff, all sorts of uh, things over there. So jump over and, and sign up if you feel like it. Um, it's one of the one of the biggest spurs to my flank in in making sure this uh, this podcast comes out every week. Um, and, uh, believe it or not, <laughs> I am thinking about ways to expand the show. Uh, I am thinking about ways to pr- potentially add in a third weekly episode. Um, and that's something that I'll certainly be more highly motivated to do, uh, should the show continue to become, uh, more of a career and less of a hobby. It's already something that, uh, you know, takes up a, a good deal of my professional energy each week. So, um, e- essentially, I, it sounds kind of awful to say it in this way, but it's essentially true. The more money the show makes me, the more time I can afford to spend on it, making stuff that you might enjoy. So head over to patreon.com slash history if you want to support the show. And uh, we may end up in the new year with uh, with three episodes a week. We'll see how we go on that front. Anyway, um, thank you to new listeners. Thank you to old listeners. Thank you to Patreon uh, supporters. And thank you especially to the people going out there and spreading the good word of Half House History. It is, of course, immensely appreciated. Got to get those numbers up. Those numbers, well, they're not rocky numbers anymore, but the numbers can always go higher. So please tell your friends, tell your enemies, tell people about whom you feel largely ambivalent. And I will see you back here next week for more nonsense, of course. Uh, until then, leaving you with a question. It's not actually a question. No, sorry. It's a really dumb joke that I found that I thought was actually kind of funny. So I'm going to tell it to you. Like I'm just reading it out of a joke book um, and not only is it a really dumb and bad joke, it also requires a level of understanding as to um, the mechanical properties of church organs. So just like a super, super accessible joke and a really, really strong way to end the show today. Here it is. Why did Bach have so many kids? Because his organ didn't have any stops. (laughs) 